So today we get to continue mining away at the book of Hebrews. We've made it so far as chapter 6, and today we're going to be picking into verses 4 through 8. And this passage, for anyone that is not aware, is probably among the most hotly debated in Christendom. And I, for myself, am not perfect, nor am I above critique. Um, but I've, I've come to my thoughts and my positions on this passage from much study. And that being said, I do welcome further discussion if you think I missed something or you think that there's something else that should have been added. I appreciate the conversation. So would you please read today's passage with me? Hebrews 6 starting in verse 4 and going down to verse 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we gather together as brothers and sisters in need of your word. We look at our world that we live in and the difficulties it is facing, the division that is sown in every aspect. And Lord, we know that we need you. We need your word to guide and direct our hearts and our thoughts and our minds. Lord, we pray that your word would do that this morning. That your word would infiltrate every part of our hearts and that it would continue to lay us bare before you and make us aware of our need for you. God, go with us this morning, and by your word may we be made more like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to avoid two things in particular. I want to avoid having almost anyone in here feeling like this passage doesn't apply to them. And secondly, I don't want anyone to feel like they can use this passage to write someone off, themselves included. As to the first item, we all understand from the passage in 2 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete for every good work. So obviously we know that this pas passage is going to be useful to all of us. But does it apply to all of us? This is the crux of the issue when it comes to our passage today. Who is this warning directed at? Who is it that should quake at the 
thought of such irredeemable apostasy and departure from the faith. I did say that almost everyone fits within the purview of this passage. I came up with only two groups that might not. And the first one that came to my mind was the outright unbeliever. While they are in an equally precarious position regarding their their faith and their position before the Lord, because all who deny the Lordship of Christ are equally damned, our passage today is speaking to those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. The outright unbeliever has yet to cast a verdict in their head and their heart of the truth of the gospel because they do not yet know it. Neither the unevangelized or the lifelong atheists know what they're missing. And for my part, that's one of the reasons why these people, from a human perspective, should be the most straightforward to evangelize. You and I both know that the Lord is the active agent in salvation, but from a practical standpoint, the lifelong atheist, the person who's never even heard of the gospel, they come with no religious baggage. Indeed, they should just be rejoicing to know the truth, and it requires a lot less gymnastics to reteach or unlearn some unhelpful things picked up in the past. There's something of a blank slate not requiring a bunch of deconstruction before rebuilding the knowledge of the gospel. But in today's multicultural, globalized, post-Christian culture, these are getting rarer and rarer. The only other elimination besides the completely unevangelized and totally atheist, the only other elimination I saw was the person who has already stepped from this life into eternity. This one can no longer fall from their profession of faith, or lack thereof, because they have reached the end. They cannot help but believe because they see the truth revealed before them. The believer sees the truth that they have indeed persevered to the end and are welcomed into the promised rest that we are promised earlier in the book of Hebrews. The unbeliever, however, at this point is proven to be wrong. At this point, there's nothing to be done. No amount of prayers or indulgences or anything else can save a person at this point. These two categories, the one who has never known the truth and the one who now knows the truth fully, are the only ones I found who may escape the aim of our passage this morning. For the rest of us, this has some manner of application. And the obvious question that arises in light of that teaching is, and the teaching that many of us have received from this pulpit, is how could this apply to the believer today? If you were trying to pigeonhole Elk Point Baptist Church and into our theological stream of thought, you've got a Calvinistic Reformed Baptist Church. From the Calvinistic side, you have the constant acronym of TULIP, major distinctive, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. 
That last one, the perseverance of the saints, is a big one in our message today. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith says of the perseverance of saints, those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in the grace to the end and be eternally saved, because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. I would hold to this. Pastor Jim would hold to this. Our elders would hold to this. How then could our passage this morning even begin to apply to the believer? Is it just a hypothetical statement, an inscripturated what if? I don't believe so. When we read, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. I don't believe that this is all just hypothetical. If a true believer then is incapable of falling away, then what's the purpose of warning them against falling away? Isn't that like warning a penguin not to fly or an elephant not to walk on water? It's just something that can't happen. When God calls his people unto salvation, there is no refuting that call. But between the moment that we respond in faith to the effectual call of our Lord and the moment when we see him face to face at the end of our life's journey, there's that in-between stage where he must preserve us. I think that if you're a true believer this morning, that this passage is a means that God's used to preserve his people. Charles Spurgeon illustrated it this way. But, says one, if Christians cannot fall away, what is the use of putting this text in to frighten like a ghost that does not exist? If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and excellent purposes. It is put in to keep us from falling away. God preserves his children, but he keeps them by the use of means. One of these is to show what would happen if they were to fall away. There's a steep cliff. What is the best way to keep anyone from going near it? To tell him that if he did, he would be inevitably dashed to pieces. The fact that we are told of the consequences keeps us from it. A friend puts away a cup of arsenic and says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he think for a moment that we will drink it? No, he tells us the consequence and is sure that we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this cliff, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold me up and I will be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution. This holy fear keeps the Christian from falling away. If God has indeed called you, then this morning he may be preserving you by warning you of a cliff that you must not step off. And your response, our response, must be to cling to the Father for safety. If we were then to throw ourselves off the cliff, then we had not faith in our Father to begin with. I think our passage this morning is two-pronged. Written to believers as a warning unto salvation and to those who would ultimately fall away unto damnation. 
When I read this, I cannot help but to think of those who I would once have counted as Christian brothers and sisters, only to see them forsake the faith in favor of the things that this world has to offer. And I want to clarify that when this passage says it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, that this is stating that it is a human impossibility. Jesus once told his disciples that with God all things are possible. God will save whom he will save. Judas forsook Jesus and was not restored. Peter did the same and was restored by Jesus. None of us can know whom God has chosen, and as such, we cannot determine any as being outside of the reach of the gospel, apostate or otherwise. So don't think for a moment to place yourself in the position of arbiter determining whether or not someone is saved. But one way or another, the brother or sister who has walked away from their faith is in truly a terrible situation. Peter in 2 Peter 2 was speaking of false teachers. And he said, After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I would wager that the fiercest atheists, indeed those who have crossed the line from atheism to anti-theism, are overwhelmingly composed of those who have somehow, some way experienced life in the church. Admittedly, many of them suffered some form of abuse or mistreatment by those within the church, but their level of anger and vitriol, their hatred and their bitterness, they squarely level at the Lord of hosts and his people. Is it any wonder then that the author here warns that we cannot turn them from their chosen path? that it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. The example the author gives is that of, again, the farming analogy. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And if you're listening, that should obviously turn up in our mind a teaching of Christ, the parable of the sower. Christ is sitting in a boat preaching to the assembled crowds, and he says, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil and immediately sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let them hear. And this caused all manner of confusion, and he 
explain this in private to his disciples, explaining that when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And that is what's sown along the path. As for what was sown in rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. If you've been tracking in my wanderings through Hebrews, you'll realize that this parable comes up regularly. It's because the theme of the perseverance of the saints is a major one throughout this book, and this parable is key to our understanding, and they do a great job of informing each other. Another passage from earlier in Hebrews that you have to keep at the forefront of your mind as you have these conversations is from chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. The author of Hebrews here is talking to the church. For me to stand here in the pulpit, I look out at all of my brothers and sisters here, and I assume what I'm looking at to be believers. Because I know many of you, I have a good sense of the spiritual state of maturity for many of the people here. But I can never indisputably know the eternal destination of even one of the people here. Just as you cannot know mine. That's God's purview. I mean, all you have to do is look at the heartbreaking myriad of disgraced preachers in, throughout Christian history to know that a person can put on a great face and look to be a legitimate follower of Christ. And from the pews to the pulpit, this warning against falling away applies to every single one of us. The seed in the good soil and in the rocky soil and among the weeds all showed great promise of growth at the beginning. They each appeared to have the making of a healthy plant, but the deciding factor was which of these plants continued to the end and produced fruit. Which one of these persevered? I said I wanted to avoid two things. The first being having almost anyone leaving here feeling like this passage doesn't apply to them. And secondly, having anyone feel like they can use this passage to write someone off, themselves included. I wanted to point something out to drive home that second point. For many, the idea of the perseverance of the saints is a sticky issue. Can I lose my salvation? Can it be taken from me? Am I actually saved? How can I know? These are all legitimate questions. 
that we should ask. The issue at stake is why we are asking and what's the tone that we're coming with. If you're coming with these questions, asking them in this attitude of once saved, always saved, how much can I get away with, how close can I get to the edge, I believe there should be real concerns about the security of your soul. As believers, we are to flee from temptation, to put to death the things of our old life. If we're trying to see how much of the baggage of our old life we can bring with us, we need to reconsider where we stand. But if we're asking those questions from a place of genuine concern for our own spiritual well-being, that should encourage you that you are indeed on the right track to begin with. To return to the cliff analogy, this passage has warned us of a cliff running parallel to the narrow road of our faith. And some will choose to take that warning as a how close to the edge can I walk challenge. Others will take that warning as how far away is safe. Neither likely plan to jump off the cliff headlong, but one flirts with danger and the other pursues security in Christ. When I was a young teenager, my mom took me out to um, Glacier National Park and we went up to the glacier and there was a big rope line that said, don't go past here. And me being a young teenager and my sister being a year younger than myself went, let's see how close we can get to the cracks without falling in. And my mom at this point was couple hundred yards behind us and saw us completely disregard the rope and continue our little trip up the glacier and she just about lost her mind on us when she got up to where that rope is. A couple hundred yards behind us and we could hear clear as day you get back here right now because we had decided that these warnings and cautions that had been put up for us just were meant to warn us of the dangers but we could kind of flirt with the danger ourselves. And if you are the one flirting with spiritual danger, seeing how close to the edge you can dance, I implore you to return to the safety that God provides. And for you that covet the security of faith that comes from a knowledge of the truth, I commend you and let you know that the fact that you want to be secure in your faith in God is a great sign that that's at work, that that faith is happening in your own heart. I wanted to pull another passage from Second Peter, this time in chapter 1. Christ's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only God can save. His calling is what makes our salvation secure. But if you believe that you have been called by God, then you must confirm that calling by the way that you live. You will both heed the warnings like we have read today and you will submit to the instructions of the Word of God, practicing what they command. However, if you are just content to float along the margins, to steal from our last passage that you are content to remain this spiritual baby, not training your heart by constant practice, then you place yourself in danger of falling away. Because again, how do we know that we are saved? We'll bear fruit and we'll persevere to the end. From the last five years here at Elk Point Baptist Church, I know that each one who has attended here even semi-regularly have tasted and seen and known the truth of God's word and have known what it is to be a part of his people. The love and the hospitality and the richness of the word here in this church is palpable when you come here. So if you come here, you know, even if not by participation, by association. And if there's any part of you that wants to bear fruit, then we must live our lives according to the example of Scripture. But if you're here or have been here and are spiritually withering under concerns of this world or spiritual malnutrition from a lack of root in the gospel, you're running real danger of being lumped in with the plant in verse 8 of our passage, which is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Don't run that risk. As far as you're concerned, be diligent. Confirm your calling and election. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Your eternal soul is too precious of a thing to be careless in your pursuit of the faith. To know the truth of the gospel you can't just hear that Jesus died a sinner's death to save his people. You must know it in your entire being. You can't just intellectually assent to, yeah, what's in here is probably true. You must know them and practice them in your life. If you are to remain rooted in the Lord, then your roots must go deep into his truth and must drink deeply of the living water that comes from Christ. It is a great burden and sorrow of being a pastor or even a believer who has spent time in the church to see those that to our eyes we would have counted as brothers and sisters depart from our fellowship and seemingly depart from the faith. 
We can't say with authority what their fate is. Are they lost entirely or are they just missing from the fold? So we pursue them as far as we can. And then we pray. For those of you with friends or spouses or children or co-workers, whoever that have followed that path, pursue as far as possible and pray. And some of them, some of you will know what it means when it says in this passage it is impossible to restore them. Because you have friends and family and loved ones that for you to even bring up the gospel, you just see the walls slam down and know there's no touching this. There's nothing I can say. I can give the most convincing display of the gospel that I possibly can. I can do it for years and you just see the bars slam shut and the walls go up and I'm not letting that gospel in. Some of you know that pain of seeing that. It might be impossible for you to change their hearts. But it's not impossible for God. And we don't know that they have sealed their fate. So we pray. And we pray and we pray and we pray that God might soften their heart that the seeds of the gospel that we have been faithful in presenting day after day after day after day to seemingly deaf ears would find some purchase in their souls. Brothers and sisters, pursue the lost and the wayward. Don't let one person come into our midst in Elk Point Baptist Church and leave without a trace. No one should be able to come in here and fellowship with us and then just walk away uncontested. Pursue them. And if you can't pursue them, pray for them. And personally, drink of the spiritual nourishment that is available to you. There are so many around the world that would give absolutely anything to have the access that you have. People laying down their very lives for access to this book that we have in our possession, that we have on our phones, that we can listen to on the radio or on the TV or on the internet. People are literally dying for that. Drink deeply of what you have access to. Even here in this church, you have preaching, you have worship, you have Bible studies, you have time for your own personal study, you have time to pray yourself. You have such beautiful Christian fellowship that we have here in this church. Drink deeply of those and grow in Christian maturity. And then when you come to the end of your life's journey, you can know that you have persevered. And you can know that God has used this warning against falling away as a means to make that happen. And you can know that any you have interacted with throughout your life, you have done your level best to share the same with them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for each one here. 
And I pray for myself that the warning found in our passage this morning would be a means of your grace in keeping us true to the faith. That it would not stand as a witness against us that we were warned but shunned that warning. I pray for we who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of your word and the power of your spirit, that we would persevere in the faith, growing in the knowledge and likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, who we are told is the firstborn of many brothers, that we might be found to be heirs of the promise and members of your household. And God, we pray for those who have fallen away from the faith and from the fellowship, who have pursued the things of this world instead of pursuing you. I pray that you would restore what we cannot. Bring repeatedly to our hearts and to our minds those in need of such prayer and pursuit. Let we who have believed be unashamed and bold in our proclamation of the gospel to everyone whom we meet. Lord, we commit these things into your hands and into your care. All of them we ask for your glory and for the building up of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.